This is a production of Cornell University. Yeah, let, let's get started here. Uh, thanks, everybody. Welcome to the seventh episode this year, the Cornell Turf Show, our fourth week doing this. Uh, been been great. A uh, couple of weeks, sunny and warm, getting to talk about people out playing, and then there's snow on the ground here for us in Ithaca. So um, maybe a couple of you guys joining from, from indoors this morning. Um, today's guest, Dr. Johnny Inguajado of UConn. Uh, we're going to do a lot of talking about roots today, and, and for our live attendees, again, we have a poll question. Um, just kind of what, what uh, grass do you guys have on your greens, bent, poa, mix, other, so if you get time, uh, fill that poll out. Um, but otherwise, we'll, we'll get started. Uh, what, what of our previous guests on the show, Rich Buckley, for those who can see on the screen, we got a nice picture of Rich in the lab. What's, what's he up to there, Frank? <laughs> Well, Rich is a busy guy, Carl. Thanks for uh, thanks for hosting, and thank you guys all for um, uh, joining us today. Whether it's live via video or uh, we've even made this into a podcast. So, for those of you not watching on, you know, News Channel Six or something, you can't necessarily see the uh, slides here. But uh, Rick's a long time. Rich is a long time supporter of all the things we've done to try to help with diagnostics, and of course, I think had a bit of an influence on our guests uh, career uh, during his time there. So yeah. uh, let's just start out with some images, Carl. You know, I, I, I sort of scour Twitter uh, weekly looking for things and, and, you know, projects are wrapping up, whether they're you're washing ball washers or, or fixing up ball washers or putting in new bathrooms. Uh, people are getting new equipment delivered. And, and, and here's a, a shot, of a whole bunch of pumps being pushed into triplex, uh, mowers on their way for delivery. Uh, of course, spring is springing uh, and sprung in many areas. And, and so many golf courses are uh, fortunate to have areas where it makes sense to have these beautiful flowering trees. I know we have them on a lot of the state park golf courses, certainly the ones down at Beth Page that I'm most familiar with. But I thought I'd share, you know, if you're waking up this spring morning like we are in, in upstate New York with some snow, I'd share uh, some pictures from my friends down under in Australia. I have a lot of close friends that uh, I've developed over the years of visiting there. And uh, here's a shot from an area just the northwest of Sydney. Uh, this is a golf course in the lower left uh, taken about a week ago. Uh, and this is what it looked like uh, just last week after the flooding wow. went through. They got essentially three quarters of their annual rainfall uh, in a day. Um, so, <laughs> you know, if you think you're having a bad day, uh, you know, how about these four guys, uh, you know, oh trying to gosh. get it done there. So, you know, uh, before I pass it back to you, Carl, for the BMP minute today, and we go through my little spiel and get to Johnny, let me remind everybody about this very exciting project we've got on, got going on in a partnership with the New York state pollution prevention, prevention Institute, which is of course funded by the New York state DEC. Uh, this is based at the Rochester Institute of Technology, much like the New York State IPM program funded by the but funded by New York State is, is based at Cornell University. And we're partnering with them and our old pal Rick Slattery, the longtime former superintendent at Locust Hill Golf Club that we did the wash pad with years ago. I just want to remind you, we've been at this for about a year and a half, a year, a little over a year now in earnest. We've collected the data done a bunch of work trying to improve the adoption of best management practices, uh, essentially west of I-81. And it's uh, culminated recently in, in website, uh, a website that's housed at the Pollution Prevention Institute. And again, for those of you watching on, on News Channel 6, you can see uh, 
the website here. Uh, you have the ability to subscribe uh, and reach out to us. Maybe you have a question about what this is, like to learn a little bit more. I'd encourage you to uh, participate in this. There are some resources that you'll see highlighted there. And one in particular that I will pass it over to Carl to talk about is this wonderful placard that's now been launching and available through Twitter, through the website. You can download, print out copies. We're about to mail out a bunch, Carl. How did we come up with this uh, idea to release this poster and then take us through the minute? Yes, so we spent most of last year, uh, again, with, with Rick Slattery's help, uh, just randomly surveying a bunch of golf courses in our region, asking about a, a bunch of uh, best management practices. And from that data, we learned, okay, you know, maybe we should focus on certain practices uh, that people aren't doing so much, and, and let's condense the information down into a digestible format. And so this is what we came up with, this infographic poster, really simple, short-hitting tips. Uh, it, we aimed this to be very easy to look at, uh, not too much text on here, just really quick-hitting, easily digestible uh, uh, best management practices. So uh, for those who, who have been on the with us on the show for the last couple of weeks, we've been taking certain pieces of this, expanding it out, doing a tip of the day. Uh, and so our tip of the day today is uh, irrigation runtime. Everybody does this in minutes, right? And that's understandable. You got to program the irrigation system in minutes, but not a whole lot of people from, from when we're going around talking to people know how that, that runtime in minutes translates to inches. Um, and so it's always been kind of confusing for me. I didn't come from turf, but uh, you know, we, we look at rainfall and we say, hey, it rained an inch yesterday, or hey, we got a half an inch. But when we talk about irrigation, oh, I ran it for 10 minutes last night. I ran it for 12 minutes. And not everyone that I've seen knows how that minute number translates to inches. So our BMP tip of the day, hey, just kind of kind of get a feel for, hey, how much, how many inches did I put down if I ran a 10-minute cycle last night? That seems like something we should know when we're, we're looking at ET data and evapotranspiration. Again, we're measuring that in inches. If we're replacing that amount of water, we should probably know. Um, how many inches we're applying to. So, so today's uh, BMP tip of the day, you know, throw some catch cups out there. Uh, you can even do this with a soil moisture meter if you run it for 10 minutes. Hey, probe before and after and see what percent increase you got. Um, so, so that's our uh, BMP tip of the day. Thanks, Carl. I, uh, I turned my um, uh, camera off. I might be having a little bit of internet trouble, Carl. So keep me honest. If you can't hear me, uh, jump a shout out at me right away, okay? Mm -hmm. Yep. All right. So uh, before we get to John, our conversation uh, about uh, turf grass diseases, especially root issues early on, um, John's got a, a lot of expertise in a lot of areas here. Let, let's start with just the weather. Um, in case you were wondering, it's warmer than normal. Even though there's snow on the ground outside, you can see uh, some areas around Buffalo, out on even on the east end of Long Island, you're looking at two weeks ahead of normal where John is out there in stores, Connecticut, two weeks ahead of normal, uh, creeping into two weeks, almost three weeks ahead of normal in and around the uh, Buffalo area as well. So in case, lest anybody wonder that the last couple of cooler days uh, might be what we're having uh, overall, we've been warmer. We've also been persistently dry, uh, except for <laughs> where Rich Buckley is on Thursdays. Every place but where Rich Buckley is on Thursdays uh, typically has been dry. This is a look at percent normal precipitation, um, uh, you know, across the region over the last month, uh, not just short of a week. So this is uh, about a week ago. These maps update 
uh, every Thursday and they don't update until after we do this webinar. So unfortunately with these things, we're looking at some dry weather, but to clarify, a lot of these things aren't gonna change much by the little bit of rainfall that just might've went through recently. Well, one of the things that did go through recently was uh, uh, warmer temperatures and drier conditions. And again, chatting with Rich uh, this morning, he's starting to get some winter damage uh, on annual bluegrass, a little bit on Kentucky bluegrass. Uh, into the labs as warm temperatures come up, if things start greening up, you can see uh, maybe what's not going to green up or sometimes POA starts green, but because it gets dry, uh, dies out. Now, again, it's been a little bit wet the last recent uh, week or so uh, up until just uh, yesterday. Uh, you know, you're getting one, two inches again in, into New Jersey is soaking wet. Looks like even where out where uh, Johnny is, uh, it's pretty wet out in stores, Connecticut, uh, but in general, everybody had a little bit of rainfall the last week, but that's not going to solve all the problems. What it seemed to do, uh, John, and let me let me start by uh, chatting with this thing about this thing first. Uh, this popped up on the radar. Um, Rich said he got a bunch of samples that came in the lab and I immediately, you know, go to the uh, the uh, publication out of Kentucky that that. Uh, uh, you know, Paul Koch and Bruce and everybody's contributed to over the last several years. And I wonder how much you know about this. This is one of those weird new diseases in my mind. When I look at the chemicals, uh, there's a lot of uh, A subscript, A superscripts there, which means a lot of companies wrote two, w, two double E uh, formulations. Uh, these are EPA emergency use guidelines that these products will work uh, on this particular disease. Uh, and then a lot of the combination products, there's not a lot of data on them. If you look at the efficacy there, this L indicates very limited data where we have, we do have good data on a lot of them, but a lot of them are, are two double E emergency sorts of things. And John, let me bring you in here for a minute and, and ask you, uh, what do you think? Uh, what, what, what do you want to tell me about why Tia Patch controlling it and worrying about it with, with the current weather conditions? Um, I mean, it's definitely, I mean, it's a perennial issue. Um, I mean, folks that are managing POA, and it looks like a number of our uh, participants today are, are POA growers. Um, yeah, I mean, it, it seems to be, uh, it seems to be an issue that, that people deal with pretty free, frequently uh, in the spring. I mean, one thing I would say about it is, in most cases, it's generally not a devastating disease. I mean, you, you get some yellow rings and it's kind of one of those first diseases that we see every spring. And so everyone's fired up about it. Um, uh, generally, I, I don't find it terribly, you know, devastating, but it can be problematic because it's a, it's a fungus that's working down there in the thatch. Um, and you can get some kind of degradation there in the thatch and you can kind of get some softness mm -hmm. in that ring, mm -hmm. uh, which, you know, obviously can have an impact on ball roll in some cases mm -hmm. when, particularly when it's really severe. So, um, so, you know, it can be a challenge, um, you know, regarding, uh, when we see it, it's, you know, it's something that we'll start to start to see showing up when, when the turf starts to break dormancy. Uh, I noticed it. I mean, you brought it up that, that Rich is seeing it in the lab down there. I'm seeing it at our field showing up. Um, and you'll see it until, until temperatures, you know, consistently break 75 degrees. We'll, we'll, we'll see it, you know, we'll see it 75, even 80 degrees. So. And I, and I think your comment about um, the one problem many, many would have with it um, would be uh, that it causes that pitting 
that depression yep. um, that will disrupt ball roll. I, I actually think you're right. I'm not sure I've ever seen it be lethal, uh, but I have seen it. Um, I have seen it uh, cause those depressions, which are ball roll issues. So right. li listen, I want to get to this next topic because I brought it up with Rich last week. I know this is something you've spent a fair amount of your career working on as well. And, and that's early season anthracnose. Um, you know, one of the things I've read, uh, especially something I think you got interviewed last year, you called this uh, particular problem, Johnny, a, a chronic disease, one that you just sort of learn uh, to live with. And I guess for in the places where it is chronic, um, where does early season stuff fit in? Um, what do you usually tell people you know, why they're seeing it or what's it about and then how to manage it. Um, yeah. I mean, I think the early season stuff, I, I really like the, the early season stuff probably to maybe an indication of, of areas where you, you kind of have a lot of moisture sitting around in the canopy, um, you know, stuff that was probably hanging around in the fall kind of remained wet in the fall and kind of, you know, maybe we had some, you know, moderate temperatures over the winter and, and it's just kind of moisture hanging around in there and, and the fungus is kind of continuing to work away. Um, I mean, in most cases, uh, you know, I'd, you know, be curious to hear what people's experiences are, but you know, in most cases, I, I kind of see the, the early spring stuff is kind of a transitional. Um, it kind of comes, but it's not the big flare up that we see kind of showing up into June and July. Um, so, I mean, and, and because, because it is showing up at that time of year, oftentimes it's early enough where we can get POA to kind of recover and fill back in. Wow. So, um, you know, I think once we kind of start our, our, our fungicide programs and just, just turf starts to grow again, uh, a lot of times we can kind of overcome that, that kind of early season stuff. Okay. Well, thank you for making the transition really easy as we start our conversation about you know what I know you've been playing around with for a, a while now we've talked we talked about it last year, probably around a year ago this time it comes up every spring as it relates to soil temperature and timing of fungicide applications and the kinds of problems we have with root path root pathogens now what you know what's really interesting is if you look at our two inch soil temperatures. Uh, as modeled and reported on our turfgrass forecast website which art builds for the you know pulls from the northeast climate center we were actually uh a little bit warmer last week uh than we are this week uh it looks like it's gotten warmer further south more uniformly but the soils are still uh in the low 50s uh john and and really that's the launching point for me here because you know rich buckley likes to remind me that the fungi don't read the textbooks and so they don't really know what they're, you know, well, it says in the textbook, it does this, but it seems like this is one of those fungi that we really tie to uh, soil temperature activity. Is it something that if I've had a chronic problem with, it's good to get out there early and do this now, maybe while it's drier for summer patch and fairy ring. Take all I would have had a treat, it may be best in the fall, but let's start with the ones that I'm timing up for spring applications. Can I be too early? Yeah, I would say you can certainly be too early. Um, you know, summer patch for an example, um, it, it, these fungicides only work when the fungus is, is actually actively growing. Um, so, you know, these fungicides that, that you apply them, they're gonna degrade. And so if you apply them too early, 
they're going to break down, they're going to degrade, uh, they're going to be metabolized inside the plant. And if that happens before the fungus is actually actively growing and infecting the plant, then you just wasted that application. Um, so, so certainly, and, I, and, you know, I think it's great to look at soil temperature maps like you just pulled up there. Um, you know, it's good to, to monitor those things, but, you know, I think that we need to be, we need to be mindful of, it's not just that one, it's not just that, that blip where soil temperatures all of a sudden shoot up to 65 degrees for a day. Um, that's, that's not biologically that relevant. Uh, we need, we need those soil temperatures to kind of stabilize. And so, you know, I encourage people to, to monitor daily, you know, look at the, you know, those kinds of computer-based things. That's, that's a great way to kind of start knowing when you need to go out there and physically track your own soil temperatures on a daily basis. That's right. Perfect. And, and so how much do we know about how long these things will last? Let's, let's start with, first off, we talked about it last week. I've talked about it with other folks. We have a chronic problem with making sure we get enough water in, right? Get enough water on it, uh, the fungicide to get it down to where they're active. How much do we know about once it gets there, roughly how long it's protecting us? How many, you know, is it like pre-emergent herbicides, John, where, you know, I get it on early, it wears out. I might have still germination later that I've got to worry about. How many, how much am I, you know, waiting till it gets to that temperature and then knowing I got to do it three weeks later and then three weeks later and three weeks later, when, when can I start thinking about how long these things are going to last? I'm no weed scientist, but from what I do know, yeah, I think we know about as much about how long a fungicide app lasts as well as we do a pre-emergent herbicide, right? I mean, those guys, it's always like, well, it's a really rainy year this year, so you're going to have to tighten up that, you know, Right. The same thing is true with fungicides. I mean, to answer your question, no, you know, we don't know exactly how long it's going to last. It's dependent on a lot of factors. I would say if we have warm and wet conditions, those things probably aren't going to last as long um, because you've got microbial activity breaking down fungicides, you've got the plant growing, and so the fungicide gets metabolized and broken down inside the plant, and, and you've got just degradation through environmental things. So Generally speaking, though, I mean, I think that the, the recommendations of, you know, high rates of, of these different fungicides on a 21-day interval, 28-day interval maybe, um, generally provide fairly reliable uh, control. But the challenge comes, you know, I mean, I, I talked to a number of superintendents, like, oh, we applied early, you know, we did it at the right time, and I still get this breakthrough, what's the problem here? And, you know, I, th I, th I think it just, it's, these root pathogens are really, really challenging to control. Our fungicides are really, you know, have a really high affinity to bind and get locked up in organic matter and soil. And that's why we need those high rates in order to control or suppress the, the disease, because we need to put as much of the, of the active ingredient as we can into that soil system for the hope that it's going to get actually to the root. Um, and, and get taken up by the plant. And if, you know, if you're using those low rates, you know, the chances are that, that you're likely going to just get it locked up and, and the roots aren't actually going to get it. So it's, uh, you got to use the high rates and, and, you know, the latest research that Jim Kearns at North Carolina State has been finding is, you know, if there's, there's always debate about whether I got to water it in or whether I got to use the high carrier volume. And he's, he's putting out some data now that really, really kind of re, you know, confirms what we've always 
taught and believed is that, you know, it is important to get down a good carrier volume or to water it in uh, with, you know, an eighth of an inch or, or... you know, I, one of the things I, I always think about whenever we're trying to solve soil problems is that you're never going to get like eradication of this organism. There's always going to be some level of infection you're going to live with, even with a good high rate drench there are likely to be escapes either because of intervals or population levels that's, that simply, you know, can't be managed. And again, those things are sort of consistent. The same conditions that cause the breakdown of the fungicide enhance the infection and, and, and populations oftentimes of these root pathogens. And so, it, you know, it brings up the question that you've studied, which is how do you deal with the sort of uh, ancillary stress that somewhat determines how much root loss I can live with, right? And I, I think you identified, you know, over the years, we've talked about the aerification and the manganese applications in particular. But when you, people come back to you and say, you know, I think I did everything right, I, you know, and it's still not working. They feel like they're at the high rate. Are you, are they saying that they're also fixing these root problems? Uh, you know, these, these uh, sort of other aspects and they're still having this problem? Or is that one of those things that's a lingering issue that they just sort of, no matter what they do, they're just going to have summer patch? I, I mean, I think that some of those things are harder to address. You know, it, it's easier to change your chemical program quickly. It's harder to remediate uh, longstanding soil, soil issues. Um, so, you know, I think it takes time. Um, and I think if, you know, if you, if you can, you know, get your root, if you can really maximize root health through good, uh, cultivation practices um, through making sure that your, uh, you know, that your manganese levels are, are sufficient. Um, you know, I think that in the long term, I think that those things are going to help. Um, so, um, you know, I think it's, it's, it's just harder to see those things take an immediate impact probably. Well, and, and a, a lot of times, you know, I think about, especially, you know, high-end guys, high-end golf courses with uh, Bempo fairways and nice lush Kentucky bluegrass, maybe some Poa annua rough uh, that they're keeping nice. Uh, you know, right now it's going to get going soon. It'll get going. I wonder worry sometimes about the taller grass, the fairways and the rough areas. Uh, John, those, those soil issues are, they're larger. It's not like you're just trying to fix putting green stuff. Mm -hmm. um, I'm wondering about these, these larger soil areas. What about Kentucky bluegrass? Uh, have we made enough headway uh, with resistance in some of the bluegrass types that that really should be your first line of defense? Um, I, there's definitely been progress there. I mean, I don't, uh, I, there are, um, you know, there's a, a number of cultivars um, and, you know, one that has been kind of studied for, for the past several years is like Barvette um has has shown some pretty good uh summer patch tolerance but um i was just looking at the at the latest ntep trial work and and it looks like there's some additional ones so barvette still continues to be good but there's some additional ones and, and I, unfortunately the names are slipping me right now yeah. but um but but there has been some progress there and i and i and i'm encouraged by that because i you know I came from Rutgers. I, I, I could appreciate some good genetics. Um, <laughs> it makes everything easier. You know, I mean, should it be our first thing? I don't know that. I don't know that it's the resistance level is that strong yet to where it's like, put it to bed kind of an issue. It's not like smut 
right, <laughs> uh, okay. in Kentucky bluegrass, right? right? We don't talk about smut anymore, but oh. um, but for summer patch, um, it's not quite that great, but it's definitely a, a big improvement. And I think that when you have the opportunity, uh, if you have a, a perennial historical problem with that disease, you should really be you know, trying to take advantage when you have those opportunities to use new seed to look at resistant ones. Okay. And so one thing that doesn't seem to have any uh, resistance uh, issues where we have any resistance to it is uh, Pythium root rot. It seems to rear its head uh, every year uh, when rainfall levels get really high. Of course, we're dry now, but um, I, I was alarmed to see uh, promotional emails coming through my email box recently from, uh, you know, suppliers throughout the region mm. who will remain nameless. So I don't get letters sent to the lawyers at Cornell who are promoting preventative Pythium root rot uh, applications. And uh, listen, I, I don't know a lot about, you know, a lot, I don't know a lot about a lot, uh, especially when it comes to these sorts of things. But when it comes to Pythium, that seems a little bit of a stretch to be worrying about having to make preventative pythium, pythium root rot applications in the next couple of weeks. Uh, what say you, John? Um, I agree with you 100%. I mean, I think that uh, there, I see a lot, I see a big push for, for similar types of programs every spring. And, you know, I'm not going to say that, that everyone's wasting their time with them. Um, but I think to, to just assume that everybody needs to do this. I mean, it's a situation where if you have a history of Pythium root rot and you know, like you've gotten lab tests and you get those results back and it's like the same wet areas every year where you get it and you get them in the spring or you get them in early summer showing up, then yeah, those, those, for those folks, I think that you know, treating preventively probably is, you know, something you ought to be considering. Well, or but maybe the, fixing the drainage. What do you think? Well, John? yeah, I mean, can we, yeah, let, of know. course, of course. Yeah. Um, but a couple of things, I mean, before we even, I mean, I agree with you hundred percent on that. Um, but I think an important thing to remember is that, you know, it's not like we're just, it's not like take all patch or summer patch where you've got one single pathogen out there. When it comes to Pythium root rots, there's a lot of different Pythium species. Some are cool weather, grower, you know, infecting pythiums, others are warm season, uh, warm weather types of, of pathogens. And so to say that you need to, you know, go out, you know, even if you get a soil, you know, diagnostic lab test saying that you've got a pythium root rot, you know, you got to think about when did you see that? Did you see it in the middle of the summer or did you see it like towards the end? Um, because in some cases, you know, maybe the optimal preventive uh, timing is in the summer months, not right now. You know, just like we were talking about before, you can be too early, huh. you know? So, so it's where, do the, where does our use of phosphites come into this discussion? Because obviously they come up a little bit as a treatment uh, that a lot of guys are on. And I know uh, John Kaminsky a number of years ago was, was uh, you know, rambling around finding pythiums that phosphites didn't control. Do we have any of that going on with the variety of pythium species we have in the root zones, ones that are might might simply not be affected very much by phosphite. Are we potentially selecting uh, for that particular pythium with the way we use phosphites nowadays? Yeah, I mean, there's, um, you know, John actually is continuing to kind of do some of that work. Um, and, and it does appear to be the case. Um, there, there do seem to be, um, you know, through, through the very consistent use of phosphites or, or, or signature type uh, products, um, 
Yeah, it does seem that, yeah, we are perhaps selecting for, because, because those products are pretty broad spectrum pythium materials, mm -hmm. it seems that there are some weaker pythiums, uh, because I said there's a lot of species. So there's some weaker ones out there um, that might not be as sensitive to those. And so through the continued use, we're selecting for those weaker ones. And, uh, and it, it does seem to cause, uh, you know, kind of a, a low uh, canopy level blight. Um, and it typically, sh you know, it shows up during the summer months. Um, but fortunately, what, what uh, John has seen and what others have seen is that it is pretty easy to, to check up. Um, so, um, you know, they seem to be very sensitive to, to some of our traditional Pythium products like Segway or Banol. And so, um, so, you know, uh, just kind of one or two applications of one of those products, if, if, if that's what you're dealing with, does Perfect. seem to make a difference. Perfect. Carl, we're getting close, brother. Any questions for us before we uh, thank John and sign off? Yeah, no questions from the group, but but uh, I did have a comment, John. Uh, a couple of weeks ago, again, we were talking about these trench applications, uh, and Jason Griffiths asked a good question. You know, can I throw a wetting agent in there, or can I just poke a hole, and maybe uh, that allows me to get some more of that application down into the root zone easier? Uh, any comments on on maybe one of those two methods, uh, getting it down there easier? Yeah, I mean, I you know, I, I think we might have even talked about that last year when we were talking about uh, summer patch, but. I, I, you know, I haven't seen some, some, I haven't seen really great data on that yet, but I am a firm believer that, you know, kind of preloading uh, your soil system with a wetting agent is probably really important to ensuring that you get good fungicide movement down. Um, you know, we've all seen those pictures, you know, like with the finger flow. Um, so, you know, if you have fingered flow of water movement through your soil profile, well, that's where your fungicide's going. And so if you've got, you know, preferential movement, then you've, you're potentially not protecting all of your roots. And so by getting a, a wetting agent in there and uniformly wetting that profile, you're hopefully going to get more uniform uh, fungicide coverage. Perfect. Thanks for the comment, Carl. John, thanks for taking the time to join us. Really appreciate you uh, doing this again. And best to Michelle and the kids. Carl, uh, another fast 30 minutes in the books, brother. Yep, another one in the books. Uh, and a quick uh, announcement. Um, for those who are familiar, last year there was a documentary. Uh, I think it's the Barstool Golf Guys did it with the Wingfoot, Steve Rabidou, a behind the scenes uh, for the US Open. And they're actually releasing another one tonight. I think it's at eight o'clock, but but I did see some uh, in their trailer, some images of national golf links in there. So for you guys who are really interested in maybe a behind the scenes look of, of some uh, really high level golf course management, you might want to check that out tonight. But um, yeah. other than that, uh, we'll, we'll get everybody out of here. John, thank you. Thank you again for your time. Uh, as always, it's been the Cornell Turf Show. Fast as 30 minutes in turf. See you guys next week. All right. See good ya. time. Good luck, everybody. Thanks Have a good lot. season. Good luck. This has been a production of Cornell University, on the web at cornell.edu.